You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 24th of October. And on the programme today, we actually looked into the apparently murky world of online reviews. Now, that is as several major online firms unite to fight the fakes. We heard from the campaigner Kay Dean from Fake Review Watch. And we discussed the importance of honesty and trust with restaurant reviewer Sam Wood, who's better known as Fudiva. Meanwhile, a decades-old rivalry is being reignited in the gaming world. That's as two new games featuring Super Mario and Sonic the Hedgehog have been released in the same week. So which is better? We caught up with tech influencer Mohamed Daba, who is better known as the Tech Act. We also got into the thorny subject of drugs shortages. That's as women are complaining of a widespread lack of supplies of the essential hormone medicines they need if they're going through the menopause. We wanted to know why we see these sudden shortages and what can be done to avoid them. Dr. Nizreen Al-Ghazal, a specialist endocrinologist from MediClinic, joined us on the programme. Plus, Dubai's private schools have recorded their largest ever increase. They've enrolled 39,000 new pupils this year. We spoke to the Director General of the Educational Governing Body, that's the KHDA, and also to one of the UAE's biggest school groups, GEMS. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of women are going on strike today in Iceland, including the Prime Minister and even stay-at-home mums. Tatjana Latinovic, the president of the Icelandic Women's Rights Association, gave us the lowdown on why they're walking out. And Chris McCarty, our head of sport, joined us on the programme with all the latest headlines, including Afghanistan's shock win against Pakistan. We're going to take a look first at the apparently murky world of online reviews. Now, I didn't think they were murky until I read this article over the weekend because there's a group of major online firms, uh, including all the all the big names, Amazon, Booking.com, Expedia, TripAdvisor, Glassdoor. They're all getting together to fight the fakes, or at least uh, they say that's the case. They're going to be sharing information between each other on how to deter fraudsters. And that comes as several reports by governments around the world have found that chatbot-like AI systems are now being used to write these bogus online reviews for profit. But apparently this isn't new. This isn't an artificial intelligence scenario. It's been going on for years, or so say the campaigners. Apparently you can buy reviews, and in fact there are people out there swapping reviews and even being paid to write dozens and dozens of seemingly real reviews, not just on TripAdvisor, but on Google, Booking.com and Expedia. Now, one person who's been following this story for some time is the campaigner Kay Dean from Fake Review Watch. She's a former federal criminal investigator who's actually been conducting an in-depth investigation over the last five years. I spoke to her late last night. She's based in the United States and she explained why she first started researching this topic. I used reviews about five years ago to find a medical provider and ended up having a bad experience. And so I started to do some research into this practice that I had gone to and ultimately uncovered that the practice had someone on social media and Facebook groups 
bartering and trading reviews with other businesses. And so my personal experience with fake reviews spurred my larger investigation. And what did you find? I have found that the scope of the problem is just massive, much worse than most people I think are aware of, and that the tech companies and review sites are in large part to blame for the problem, and that no one's really doing anything serious about it. There's multiple aspects to this. There's very organized, extensive networks all over social media that are bartering and trading or just review services selling reviews. There is a a tremendous amount of review fraud being organized on social media. And I think the public would be shocked. And I have documented on my YouTube channel, so much review fraud originates on social media. So are people actually being paid to write these reviews then, these pretend reviews? Yes, yes. And how many would you say are fake? That's a good question. And I don't think really anyone has a precise answer to that question. Some expert is up to 30% or even higher of reviews are fake. And of course, the review platforms have their self-reporting, which in my opinion would, would be lower. So 30% or higher are what experts are saying. And with artificial intelligence, the fake review problem is just going to get much worse and harder to detect as it presents a new challenge in this whole space. Do you think that these websites are doing enough to combat these fake reviews? No, absolutely not. My research shows that they are doing a terrible job at self-policing. Some people might say it's just not a big deal. Like when you read the reviews, you have to take them with a pinch of salt anyway. Well, actually, you know, it is a big deal. Here in the United States, fake reviews are illegal. And the Federal Trade Commission here is currently looking at rulemaking on this issue And there is pressure on Congress here to start revising Section 230, which protects review platforms from liability for reviews that they post. And so it's a big deal. And I believe the scope of the problem is so massive that it's actually distorting the marketplace. There's so much fraud. And how is it that I can get on these review platforms? And I use no automation, Georgia, just my eyes and spreadsheets. And the amount of fraud that I can single-handedly uncover on any given day It's just shocking. So I think that points to the question that these tech companies and review platforms are not doing nearly enough to self-police. And it's not in their interest to call attention to fraud on their platforms because they profit. They want you on there. They're harvesting data. They want you using their platforms. And so given the importance of reviews to consumers and the failure of the tech companies to adequately police, self-police their review platforms, I think perhaps there is a role for governments to be looking at this problem now. And do you think this is a US-based industry or do you think it is a global industry? That's an interesting question. And I have seen and I hear from people from all over the world who are concerned about this problem, from business owners to consumers. It is a global problem affecting millions of people on a daily basis. It's distorting the marketplace. And I feel like no other form of internet fraud affects more people than online reviews. Surveys show that people rely heavily on online reviews and making decisions. So this really, really matters. I have to say, I strongly rely on the reviews. How big a problem are we looking at here? Do you think I'm getting any truth in the reviews? It's hard to say because it's very difficult for the average consumer to look at a review and determine that it's fake. And I think consumers are putting this blind trust 
and the review platforms that their algorithms and, and trust and safety teams are doing the work for them. Of course, they're billion dollar tech companies. They have the ability to be providing you with reliable information. And my research shows over and over again, they're not doing that. And so again, it's difficult for you as an African consumer to see or determine whether reviews are fake. A lot of times that the reviews can contain lots of detail and even fake photos. And so it's very, very believable. And unless you're willing to do the research I've done or get out a spreadsheet and start plotting reviewers and the businesses they've reviewed to see suspicious patterns, you don't know. And so having looked at this now for five years, I basically, my advice to consumers is just get back to the tried and true method of getting your information by word of mouth. Too many of the reviews are fake. As you're looking at a website and you're looking at the reviews, are there any sort of red flags that people should be looking out for? Sure. And you know, you always want to offer solutions. You know, I'm just here basically saying, having looked at this for five years, I dismiss them altogether because there's just so much fakery out there. I liken it to the Wild West. But if you feel compelled, which everybody does because it's so appealing, you know, it's a real boon to consumers. You know, I can get online and get instant information. It's so appealing. But I'll offer some tips. Let's see, you see profiles who've only left one review. That's always suspicious to me because why would you just leave the one? Or you see a batch of five-star reviews that have followed a negative review. So Because quite often a business will try to bury negative reviews with fake positive reviews. If you see profiles that are using lifted photos or stock photos from the internet of famous people, that's a red flag. Or, for example, on Google, and you start clicking on the profiles or the reviewers, and if those people have locked profiles, locked or private profiles, that's very suspicious. And why Google allows profiles to be locked is beyond me. And that is a tactic often used by fakers to conceal their review histories from you. And so that's a red flag as well. It's interesting that just in the last few days, we have heard that certain companies are coming together to try to combat these fake reviews. They suggest that there's actually sort of bots doing it. They've got artificial intelligence. And in fact, that is really slanting the review system. The review platforms aren't doing enough. I think they're feeling more pressure from governments, and particular in the UK, they're feeling pressure right now. Parliament is looking at a bill to give the Competition Markets Authority more power. So this is going on right now. They're feeling pressure in the UK. They're feeling pressure in the United States by government. Our Federal Trade Commission is looking at the issue right now. And there's pressure on our US Congress to be doing more with Section 230. And also the European Union is doing more and putting pressure. They enacted a Digital Service Act in 2022. So the tech companies' review sites are feeling government pressure. And I think this meeting, I have to wonder if it's real simply just a public relations effort to show that they're working together on this problem. That's what I'm wondering based on what I've read about it. What would you like to see them do? There needs to be adequate self-policing. And if they can't do that, then they need to invest in the resources to do that. Right now, my research shows that they are not. And so they need to invest more to self-police. It costs more money. And so up until more recently now, they really haven't had an incentive to do much because they've been pretty happy with the status quo. You know, nobody's been doing anything. And so I would like to see more transparency from these companies. These companies, these review platforms have a lot more information 
than they share with the public. They have all the information and they're in the best position to be doing something about it. For example, when Google removes fake reviews, when their algorithm finally kicks in, they just vanish off of Google. So for example, if you're looking for a medical provider there and the provider had 200 reviews just removed the day before from Google, it just vanishes. So what consumer would not want that information? I think anyone would want to know that the business they're considering might be trying to deceive them with fake reviews. So I'd like to see more transparency as well. Kadeen there from Fake Review Watch. It's shocking, isn't it? I couldn't quite believe it when I was talking to her. Um, Kay told me as well that businesses in our region have shown up in her research. Uh, Several companies here, she says, are benefiting from fake Google reviews that she thinks are created by organized networks of profiles. And as a consequence, I would be very interested to know if you've spotted any fakes out there. Please do get in touch, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 I'd also like to know whether, like me, you really rely on these reviews. I am a devotee. I won't order anything from Amazon. I won't book a hotel on TripAdvisor without reading, I mean, probably about 50 reviews, to be honest. Like I scroll all the way down. I like to look. I've noted that people tend to do one star or five star because obviously you have to feel quite impassioned to be bothered to write a review. But to discover around 30% are fake by Kay's sort of estimation is really sort of staggering and and slightly depressing. Lots of people getting in touch already on, on the lines. I'd like to know whether or not you read the reviews, how much truck you put in them. Da- Deirdre says, just two days ago, I ordered a humidifier through Amazon and in the box with the product was a business card on which I was encouraged to give a five-star review of the product in exchange for 80 dirhams credit. I was disgusted by this as I now doubted the truthfulness of the many five-star reviews I had read when selecting this product over all the others available. Interesting stuff. Thank you, Deirdre, for sending that in. we are discussing the trust that we place in online reviews on the show today. That is as campaigners suggest up to 30% of them on things like TripAdvisor or Google are actually fake. So how much truck do people actually place in reviews? Uh, Lots of messages coming in on this. Thank you very much for everyone texting in. This person says, I'm actually a content creator and some brands I have worked with in the past asked if I could just include a Google review after I did a collaboration. I didn't, but a lot of influencers will charge for a a review as an added extra. Also, apparently it's illegal to write a negative review on Google in the UAE. I would love to know. I'm going to have to find that out. I actually don't know what the uh, what the answer of that is. But thank you very much to whoever sent through that message uh, anonymously. Now, one person who is scrupulous about ensuring her reviews are honest and written without external influence is Sam Wood, who is the person behind the moniker, behind the sort of influencer brand, Foodiva. Uh, Sam, I know you're not keen on being called an influencer, but I'm afraid you are one. So thank you very much for joining us on the line. Uh, you influence me. I, I choose my restaurants according to your reviews. Um, tell me why you decided when you started out to be uh, neutral, to be impartial, ultimately to pay for your meals. Thanks for having me on, Georgia. Yes, when I came up with the idea of Foodiva, it was because I, I was a little bit exasperated with the restaurant review situation 
in Dubai at the time. And this is 12 plus years ago. So I wanted to create something that was driven by impartiality and a no freebies invitation policy. So that, that's essentially how Foodiva was born. And it's grown very much since then on that basis. So whether it's myself or my guest reviewers, we do not accept invitations um, for restaurant reviews. Um, we always pay our own way. And that's the only way I feel that you can share an honest opinion whilst being constructive at the same time of the dining experience. Are you aware of a slightly murkier world where people exchange positive reviews for financial reward or, you know, as a bit of give and take, maybe a bit of a barter? Oh, 100%. Um, It's been around for a long time here and and the rest of the world. And yes, your interview with Kay earlier on, um, I 100% agree with everything that she said. And I think it's important to note a few points. Online reviews were actually born out of word of mouth recommendations. Now, the consumer is going to place far more trust on a personal recommendation or when they know there's a real person behind those reviews. Um, And that's when the reviewer pays their own way. Uh, The consumer is so wise, they know not to trust reviews that's based on an invitation or even worse than that, where they've actually been paid to write that review, as long as that review is is detailed and, and constructive at the same time. So do you think that ultimately the only way to the only way to get a trust, uh, uh, you know, to only the only way to trust in a review is actually if somebody isn't paying for the meal and and actually has to admit that because because I th- I don't think people outside the industry realise that you know journalists mm-hmm. and influencers on a regular basis get offered free stays in hotels, they get offered free meals, they get yep. offered free products. I mean, literally, the more famous you get, the less you have to pay for stuff. A hundred percent. I think that's a big issue here. And actually, it's illegal not to disclose it here. But a lot of people don't disclose the fact that their restaurant meal or their hotel stay or the product that they received was gifted or even more so so paid for. So that, that's a huge challenge. But I think from a consumer perspective, the people that are the reading those reviews, that are following this, they, they know who to follow for honest impartiality. And they know who is constantly being gifted things. So um, it, it is a murky area, but the consumer, I think, is, is very wise. That, that, but then you have the additional challenge of these other sort of Google-type reviews on aggregator review sites as well. Um, and then where you have the, the actual the fake reviews, where they've not even been gifted something, but they're being paid to just write a review of something they've never experienced. Can I ask, uh, going forward, what would be your suggestion for people who maybe have arrived newly in Dubai or Abu Dhabi and they are they, they can't get that sort of word of mouth because, frankly, they don't know a great deal of people here. Is it appropriate, do you think, to go on the Facebook groups to go, you know, where can you get honest advice here in the UAE? And as part of that, is it true that you can't say anything critical on a Google review here? You know, do you have to be careful about being critical? Because there are sort of slightly different laws in the UAE over how you're allowed to talk about other people and other businesses. 
Sure. I'll address your second question first because it's simpler. A hundred percent. As long as you're constructive, and this is what my legal team has told me from day one. And actually, when it comes to reviews that are negative, they are reviewed by a lawyer before I publish. Um, but basically, as long as you're being constructive and you're explaining why something hasn't worked or a dish, um, a dish doesn't work or the service um, hasn't been as slick as it should be, then that's fine. Um, and as long as it's personal. So you've got to be constructive. Um, and I can do that because I'm writing essentially 500 to 1,000 words for each review. The challenge is if you're giving a sort of a two-sentence review, it's very hard to be constructive um, on that front. Um, so, the, yes, there could be challenges there with defamation, for sure. Um, in response to your first question, in terms of platforms, now, personally, I have never, ever used an aggregator review site or any Google-type review to inform my decision. I've worked for a company in the past that has asked for friends and family to write TripAdvisor reviews. So I have first-hand experience of knowing that these reviews cannot be trusted. Um, I would say to people, do your own research, follow industry specialists, real people in the fields that you're looking for who will give you an honest review. In terms of Facebook groups, I think they're great for specialist subjects. But again, be very careful as some of these reviews, they could be tried and tested, but they could also be based on invitations and gifts. Um, and that's not necessarily disclosed. Um, so again, you've just got to be do your due diligence in terms of who you're following in these Facebook groups. Um, like, for instance, in my case, when I'm when I'm going to London and I'm looking for restaurant recommendations or hotel recommendations or any country for that, that matter. But London specifically, I will follow the reviews of mainstream journalists, the UK restaurant critics at The Times, Guardian, etc. Um, and I'll personally message them, perhaps, to ask for a specific recommendation if they haven't written about a certain place. So, again, it goes back to this word of mouth recommendation and trusting people rather than um, overall sort of sites and aggregator sites. Sam Wood, as always, fantastic to have you join us on the radio. Thank you so much for your time. Sam's an impartial restaurant reviewer. She runs under the moniker Foodiva. Well worth checking out her reviews because uh, she doesn't accept freebies. Uh, she pays for all of her meals. She tries to go anonymously as well, but the problem is, is that everyone recognises her now, so it's a bit, bit harder. Uh, but Sam, thank you very much. Great advice indeed right here on the agenda. Now I have a question for you. Did you play computer games when you were growing up? Well, if you did, you'll probably recognise this. Yeah, so which did you think was better? Was it uh, Mario or was it Sonic? Because they were both very much around at the same time. It's 
like a trip down memory lane, isn't it? It's really weird. And yet people of a certain age are going to remember growing up with this debate of which was better, dominating conversations at school in the 90s. And uh, I mean, basically, it was Super Mario, Sonic the Hedgehog. They were leading the gaming charts back then. And if you think about it, over the last 30 years, the amount of spin-offs that we've seen, you know, from you know the merch, the films, the, the sort of endless games, you know, Super Mario's, you know, on go-karts and all of that type of thing. Well, would you believe it? Now they're back and the rivalry is stronger than ever because Nintendo and Sega, who are the makers of those games, have actually released brand new versions in the same week. And it's the first time it's happened for more than 30 years. The last time was 1992 when Super Mario Land 2 and Sonic 2 both came out in the last week of November, or at least in the United Kingdom. Now, I wanted to get into this topic. So earlier I caught up with influencer Mohamed Daba. Now, he is better known by his handle, The Tech Act. And he admitted that he doesn't actually remember the rivalry from the first time around. I was like two years old when it happened, but I definitely played both games and there was definitely a comparison between them in our circles between the children, as you know. That makes me feel very old indeed. Which did you prefer? (laughs) For me, definitely Sonic, because I preferred more fast-paced games. Mario was more of an actual 2D platformer, so I played it a lot, but I liked Sonic more. Do you think the two games creators have deliberately released them in the same week? Now, I think there's definitely some intentions, especially from the side of Sonic uh, or Sega, in fact, because the Super Mario producer, he said that it was an interesting coincidence that Sonic released in the same week of uh, the Mario game. So you think that maybe Sega deliberately timed the release of their new Sonic game to go at the same time as, as the Mario It seems so, especially that, as you know, it's an old tactic where brands open next to each other. So Sonic or Sega have been the lower sales in terms of game releases. So what they did is they tried to put themselves next to Mario and Nintendo in order to increase their popularity or attention and sales. So, of course, over the last 30 years, I have a feeling that Nintendo has been doing better than Sega, but am I wrong in that? That's just my sort of knowledge of gaming. I suppose it's because my children have the Nintendo Switch. Actually, you're quite right. Given the stats right now, Nintendo have sold, as of 2017 stats, they've sold around 500 million games, while uh, Sonic only sold around 150 million. And those numbers definitely increased recently, but it just shows that the scale of Nintendo games are much bigger than Sonic games. So which is the better game, do you think? You know, I I suppose you probably haven't had a chance to play the brand new games since they only came out in the last few days. But what is it that makes these two games so enduring? I suppose the fact that, you know, 30 years later, they're bringing out new editions gives you a sense of just how successful they were. I mean... Their origins definitely introduced something very new uh, in terms of challenge and in terms of fun gameplay and repetitivity. Now, currently, they're becoming more of a kid-friendly games. Back then, it wasn't. They look more and appear more like to kids, and that makes them uh, very popular inherently, um, just like Pokemon games and 
these mechanics also have evolved to make them more fun to play with time. Uh, and that makes both games actually very attractive to kids. Ultimately, the creativity behind them is is amazing. I mean, one of the, the most hilarious aspects is, is the ability for characters to turn into massive elephants, for example, in the Nintendo game. And, yeah. uh, and obviously, Sonic goes super speed. And there's been a whole sort of movie franchise around Sonic as well that's been very successful. There's a sense that the games creators just have a huge amount of fun making these games. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you tried just like a few hours of these games, you'd find like you're loosening and relaxing more. And especially also the music in these games gives this sense of peacefulness, fun while playing. So they are definitely also uh, suitable for all ages, I think. If you're an adult and looking to relax just to spend a few hours just forgetting about work or anything else. And especially now, these games also incorporate four-player multiplayer. So that also makes them fun for a family or a few friends. So there's definitely a lot of things going for them. Sorts out Christmas for me. We'll be buying both the games and playing them with the children. Actually, we won't be able to buy both the games, will we? Because we don't have a Sega games system. Unless they let you play it on the Nintendo, I don't know. That's that 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 is outside my general remit and understanding of gaming. Uh, so we'll have to find out. A couple of months ago, you might have remembered that we reported on a shortage of diabetes drugs such as Azempic. Now, that shortage was caused by a sudden surge in popularity. Essentially, non-diabetic patients were looking to lose weight and uh, they were buying, buying it up in the pharmacies, essentially. But this week, another drug shortage has come to our attention. And this time, it has nothing to do with weight loss because women across the UAE are reporting problems at accessing supplies of estrogen-based hormone replacement medications, while testosterone gel, which is sometimes used by both men and women, is also said to be out of stock in pharmacies across the Emirates. Now, producer Jennifer Crichton has been digging into this to find out a little bit more and joins me now in the studio. So, Jen, what's the deal? So essentially, pharmacies are running low on a few different forms of HRT, but in particular, estrogen gel. Now, that is used to restore estrogen levels in women who are experiencing perimenopause or menopause symptoms. And it's now out of stock in private pharmacies all across the country. Now, there are a number of different brands of the gel, but when I called around pharmacies yesterday, they were all saying that they were out of stock. Now, I called a number of different private pharmacies from Dubai Herbal Treatment Centre through to major hospital chains, including Mediclinic and King's. None of them had stock. Now, a few said that they were running waiting lists at the moment where patients could leave phone numbers and they'll get back in touch with them. Most were not just because of the scale of demand for this. Now, they, those ones were saying to me, just keep calling to check, but we don't know when we'll get it. Now, one did say we're expecting six to eight weeks from now, we may have some stock. The others wouldn't give any estimate. So we are talking about significant shortages here. And the menopause doctors that I've now spoken to say they're now turning to advising patients to either start tapering down their doses now before they run out of medication entirely, or to try switching to alternative medicines. But for many women, that can be quite a scary suggestion. And in recent days, we've seen a number taking to social media to try and arrange swaps and supply support each other privately to try and spread out what is in the country at the moment. It does seem extraordinary that that what is a very simple 
normally very accessible medicine is now unavailable. I mean, what are the implications for women who can't get hold of that medication? I mean, it's significant. I think it's it's quite easy to dismiss menopause as, as people getting a bit hot and a bit cross. We've all seen those portrayals on TV. But in reality, there's more than 50 symptoms of menopause. And while some women will get through it, reasonably unscathed. Others suffer really debilitating side effects. Now, these can range from migraines, severe joint pain, osteoporosis, mental ill health, insomnia, confusion, anxiety, and drugs such as estrogel are used daily. So without them, symptoms can return. Those drugs only stay in your system for 24 hours. So it's not as though you've got a good long window when you run out of supply. Those symptoms can come back quite dramatically, quite quickly. Now, that is a concern for all of us because in May this year, a major study by the Mayo Clinic found that menopause cost American women an estimated $1.8 billion in lost working time per year. I'll say that again, $1.8 billion. Meanwhile, researchers at England's University of Southampton say menopause is responsible for a significant brain drain of experienced women in their 40s and 50s from the workforce. They followed the work lives of more than 3,000 women over the course of years and found that those who'd reported even one disruptive menopausal symptom at the age of 50 were 43% more likely to have left their jobs by the age of 55. Now, of course, it is a topic that can still be seen as taboo and especially in the workplace where women are reluctant to speak up about their symptoms. It's not something men suffer. We don't necessarily want to draw attention to ourselves, but it's easy to see how not being able to access a medication that controls those symptoms could have a significant picture on that impact on the workplace. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if women aren't able to access the medicines that they need, then it does sound that very quickly, they could find themselves in a position where they're struggling to fulfil normal daily tasks, like going to work. Do we know what's causing these shortages? Well, all the pharmacies I've spoken to say that there are supply issues further down the chain, primarily in Germany, where the most common form of oestrogen gel in market here is made. But the the UAE isn't alone in these shortages. We've seen them cyclically in the UK over the past couple of years. We've seen shortages in the US and Australia. There does seem to be an issue with the production of all manner of HRTs keeping up with demand. And that is largely, ironically enough, similarly to Azempic, because of the rise in use. We've seen a huge amount more open discussion about menopause in recent years. That taboo is shifting a bit. There's a lot more open discussion about the benefits of HRT. A lot of the health concerns with older forms are no longer the case. So it is becoming more widely used effectively as women become more aware of what it can do to help them. And that effectively is seeing supply at the moment tighten. Tighten. Yeah, Yeah. essentially the demand is outstripping it. So it's a good news story on one level because it means more women are seeking help. Hopefully, therefore, once they've got the medicine, more women are feeling better. But the reality is that right now there are potentially, you know, hundreds or even thousands of women in this country who are facing a withdrawal of that medicine. Absolutely. And if you have gone to the point of of getting onto a medication that is allowing you to control those symptoms when you're feeling good and you've perhaps not felt good for quite some time before then, to then be faced with a situation where that medication that maybe wasn't the first one that you've tried, that's maybe been months of getting you to the correct dosage, because it is for many women a real long sort of trial and error process. Mm. It's quite a debilitating thing to then be told, well, actually, that's no longer available to you as of 
no. Yeah, I mean, it's, it must be hugely frustrating. And, and, and I suppose it rings true in the context of any medicines. You know, any time you've got used to being able to access a medication, you know, you've built your life around it, essentially. You know, it's the building blocks of your life. It must be incredibly difficult to then find out that you can't get hold of it. Oddly enough, my sister works um, at a, uh, she owns uh, several vaccination clinics in the United Kingdom. And I know that sometimes it is very difficult for her to get hold of certain vaccines. Sometimes it comes down to personal relationships that she has with the drugs suppliers. You know, if she rings them up and charms them, then she might get a batch the next day. And if she doesn't, then it goes elsewhere. So there does seem to be a bizarre sort of insecurity globally in the sort of supply of drugs. And that is the topic we're actually going to look into next. We're going to move um, sideways or, or onwards from the fact that we are missing out on these HRT drugs. And we're going to find out why those are missing, how likely it is that we might be able to get them back and why this happens with medicines in any way at all. And whether it happens more here in the UAE, I have to say I doubt it because we're such a trade link here and we've got such a sort of established health system. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. Good to have you with us. Lots of comments coming through on the topic that we're discussing today, which is drugs shortages. Uh, Because just before the break, we were talking about the shortage of HRT drugs across the UAE, which are causing real problems for many female patients at the moment. But it isn't the first time we've seen drugs shortages raise concerns. Uh, Most recently, it was the diabetes drug Azempic. Now, of course, that was running low. While back in 2019, we had a global shortage of those sort of EpiPens, which are used to, uh, if you have uh, a sort of a reaction, if you're allergic to nuts or something, you have a reaction. Uh, You know, if you if you bash yourself with an EpiPen and inject yourself quickly, I think it's with adrenaline, then that can sort of, that immediately can save your life. And there was a real shortage of those back in 2019. We've had lots of messages coming through on this subject, actually. Uh, there's apparently, there was a shortage of the breast cancer drug called tamoxifen. That was three years ago. And that was when it was prescribed to this person. And there was only one brand in the UAE. And this person actually had to apply to the Ministry of Health to get a different brand to try as they were having a bad reaction to the only brand that was available here. Um, This person messaging in asks, you know, there are 40 brands in the world. So why does the UAE only stock the one? I mean, that is a very interesting question. And I know that every country has their own rules according to what they choose to stock. Over in the UK, there's an organisation called NICE, and, and they're the authority that sort of clears drugs. But how concerned should patients be here if their local pharmacy potentially runs out of the stock of medicines that they rely on. Let's talk to a doctor who knows much more than me on this subject. I'm delighted to say I'm joined now on Teams by Dr. Nizreen Al-Ghazal. She's a specialist endocrinologist at the MediClinic at Creek Harbour. Uh, Dr. Nizreen, thank you so much for joining me on the line. Um, first of all, oh, I'm going Thank to, you. Hello. Yes, I'm going to talk Hi. about those HRT shortages. Uh, how are they affecting the patients that you're working with at the moment? How severe yeah. is this shortage? Yeah, so actually we are facing shortages from time to time. I mean, we always have alternatives, but as you said, patients sometimes are used to one medication and the effect of the other, which we see as similar, might not be similar to the patient. Because although the composition might be the same, the patient might be intolerant to the excipient, to the not not to the the uh, 
component or not to the hormone itself, but to, to the excipient, which is like the cover or other uh, molecules that are in the drug. For the HRT, it has been an issue on and off. Some medications, some patches are there, but the gel is not there. Then at other points, the cream is there, but the gel is not there. Um, we are facing that on and off. Luckily, we have a plethora to choose from. So we are using those interchangeably for the patient to ensure like the best continuity of care and for the patients not to have symptoms of menopause, which is why initially we started the HRT. I see more severe shortages, as you talked about, in the diabetes medication, and that is because of the um, abuse and that patients are using those diabetes medications specifically for weight loss. So our diabetics were running out of medications. And when you interchange, again, the same issue with the HRT, you might not have the same efficacy, the same tolerability, and even the same suppression of the uh, insulin, for example, in diabetes, or the same boosting of estrogen like in HRT. So the reality is, is that just like every other product, you get supply and demand, demand. issues in, totally. in medicines. And so if you get to the point now where you're like, hang on a second, I need more Zempic, I need more of these estrogen drugs or estrogen creams, and you put right. in the order, is it not that they arrive on a plane the next day? You know, what, what's the no. problem with the supply yeah. chains? Yeah, exactly. So, so there are specific timing where the shipments of those drugs come. For example, I can talk more um, uh, easily about the Ozempic because, I mean, it has been going on for, for years now. So we have like shipments coming every month. And if our demand is much more than what we get, then by the middle of the month or after 15 days of the shipment, we're out of Ozempic. So there's like 15 days where our diabetics will have to choose another alternative. And this is not only in UAE. Actually, in UAE, we are privileged to get bigger stocks than uh, outside. Uh, all around the world, this is, this is, a, is a big problem. Uh, I hear of places that do not have these medications and de-escalate to uh, really more archaic forms of anti-diabetics. In UAE, we're more privileged, privileged, but the problem is still there for sure. So have you seen patients who have diabetes being unable mid-month to get that, you know, the life-saving medicine that they need? For sure. Now, luckily, I said we have alternatives. They're not as effective, um, but they, they can be even more effective, but then they might not be the perfect choice for our patient. So, yes, every month we have diabetic patients that we have to switch from one medication to another. It might be just the same component, just another company manufacturing, but that patient is used to this, this degree of insulin suppression, this degree of appetite suppression, this uh, degree of sugar control, that when you switch to another one, there will be changes that the patient will feel. Now, I know it is a first world problem, and I am very conscious of what's going on in, in the rest of the right. region, uh, you know, where people are finding it hard to get even the basics. But right. I think we have to speak just, unique, you know, from a unique UAE perspective here. You know, there are people here who have got used to being able to access certain medicines. What, right. what can be done about it? You know, it, I know that you can't, one can't always anticipate a sort of surge in demand. But is there, right. is there a problem further down the line with the people who are, making these medicines you know where does the where's the sticking the sticking point in the, yeah. in, the in the in the consumer channel 
Right. So, I mean, one of the solutions that has been working so far, because now the situation, as you mentioned in the beginning, is much better, is that to limit over-the-counter use and abuse. So, I mean, those medications, as you mentioned, they're diabetes medications, and they're abused or misused, let's say, or sometimes rightly used, but not with a prescription for weight loss, right? So, I mean, just uh, having every patient uh, who wants Ozempic see a specialist and be prescribed Ozempic according with a certain quantity, controlled quantity, or just according to the guidelines or only if needed, will help, right, decrease the demand and just relocate the, the Ozempic to patients who really need it. Um, so I mean, this is this is one way to uh, to to improve. The other way, I mean, is out of our hand, right? I mean, just making more Ozempic from the supplier or from the company that's based in the U.S. I mean, that that is really out of our hands. But what what has been done here and has been really successful is that nowadays you cannot get those medications without a prescription and without uh, seeing a doctor. Is it the same for these HRT medicines as well? I mean, you don't yeah. tend to get people buying them over the counter the in the same way. For sure. As, as you said, for the HRT, this is why the problem actually is less because HRT, the problem is not the abuse, but the supply. And while we have really no control over the uh, like how much is reaching the, the UAE, because, you know, uh, sometimes we have a very big quantity reaching and the demand is not uh, this much. So as a reaction, they tend to order less for next time and then other people might be out of stock. It's really unpredictable. Of course, the analysis of the trends over the years will make the supply demand like more balanced. But for now, for the HRT, it is an issue, uh, but it has been more severe for other medications. Thank you very much indeed. Really interesting to get those insights on on the supply and demand of medicines. I have to say it's one of those, as I say, I'm aware it's a first world problem, um, but nevertheless, we are very fortunate to live in the UAE that, you know, you do get these sort of expectations that the medicines you need will be widely available. Dr. Nizreen Al-Ghazal, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Nizreen is a specialist endocrinologist at MediClinic Creek Harbour. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and welcome back to the programme. Good to have you listening to The Agenda this Tuesday morning. You can see around about the middle of the show each day. I slightly pause and think, is it a Tuesday? It is a Tuesday. Um, And one of the reasons why the day is important is because tens of thousands of women are going on strike today in Iceland, including the Prime Minister, who is, of course, a woman. It is the first strike of its kind in nearly half a century. And even unpaid women, you know, like full-time mothers, are planning to down tools. Now, organisers hope this women's strike will draw attention to the country's ongoing gender pay gap and also widespread gender-based and sexual violence. To discuss it, I'm joined on the line now by Tatjana Latinovic, who is president of the Icelandic Women's Rights Association. Thank you so much for joining me on the line this morning, Tatjana. I know it's very early there in Iceland. Can I ask, have are women's strikes a, a regular occurrence in Iceland? 
Yes, hi, thank you for having me. Very nice to, to be here on, on the show with you. Well, you, you could say that the first uh, strike that women in Iceland organized was uh, in 1975, which was a UN year of the year and uh, year of the woman. And that was organized on the 24th of October. Uh, and the Iceland stood still, the country stood still because women just uh, stopped doing what they were doing, their their jobs. A lot of women at that time were uh, staying home uh, and, and they just left homes, uh, went down to the city centre uh, to protest the inequality and hence the fathers uh, and, and had to take care of children, uh, cooking and, and uh, everything else that women are doing normally and it's still in a good memory of everyone who experienced that so that was the strike in 75 since then women have walked out of working places uh five times so this is the seventh time that we are organizing the strike but what is different this year is that um it's a whole day strike as it was in 1975 so the the, the strikes in between where we would walk out at the time to protest the gender pay gap so we would walk out at a, an, an hour and minute when we thought that according to statistics women have earned their salaries because they are not earning as much as men it is um distressing on one level or frustrating on one level as a woman you know to hear that the first protest was uh, four years before I was born, so nearly, you know, nearly 50 years ago now. Um, and that, you know, that we still need to go on strike, you know, that we still don't have equality when it comes to pay. What has led Icelandic women to take this drastic action this time around? You know, what's precipitated mm-hmm. this strike? Yeah, so I think that, you know, I think that the equality is a moving target. We will never reach it until everyone is equal. And obviously, society, Icelandic society has changed a lot since 1975, and that day had a huge impact. For example, we had the, our first uh, woman uh, democratically elected president was elected just after that that uh, uh, strike or, or the idea started that. So she made this film in 1980. We have a lot of legislation that that would sort of to level the. The, the play field, uh, gender uh, quality standard and, and so on. But there are still things that we haven't managed to solve with all these, uh, with, with all that we have. And we are very aware how privileged we are in Iceland, how, how far we have we have gone in, in equality. So we are protesting this time systematic wage discrimination. There are still jobs uh, in Iceland, as in all the world, that are prim- primarily done by women, so-called women, women's jobs, and they're lesser paid and they're undervalued than the than than other jobs. These would be jobs in in uh, taking care of uh, elderly or children, in kindergartens, nursing, um, uh, uh, I don't know, te- teaching, and and so on. So you might say that these were all the all the things that women used to do at homes before they started working, and now you these these, these are jobs that they, they exist because and, and they they sort of you know without they're essential for the society. But yet the the uh, the salaries of people in the uh, working women mostly, also some men that work in in, in these jobs are are less 
or lesser valued than than sellers, I don't know, engineers and so on. This is one thing. The other thing that we are protesting is the the epidemic or is a pandemic of gender-based violence that must be eradicated here in Iceland as in everywhere in the world. And 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 that that's that's a great concern that we are we are not making any significant strides to eradicate that. And then the third thing that we that people here and um, women and I think men as well connect really, really much to and we are raising awareness to is so-called third shift. This is the mental load that women have when it comes to taking to, to homes and, and families. It's like you know, is, is my child you know tomorrow is a pink day in school? Has he is she wearing pink or or you know the little things that you the know, tyranny. Apart from, from, the- it's the, like, yeah. I call it the tyranny of the dress-up day. We seem to have one a week. <laughs> the dress-up day, you know, it, oh, did I remember that? And it seems that uh, women have more bad conscience about it than men, you mm-hmm. know, and, 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 and even in some research has shown, you know, so so that's also, we are raising awareness among women as well, you know, and, and, and are asking husbands and fathers to share that, Burden. It is the emotional load and it is a, a source of many an argument in my own household. I don't think my husband has the slightest idea when the children's birthday parties are taking place or uh, when they have to wear rugby kit versus football kit versus cricket kit and what they have to take in with them for swimming or the fact that they have a cross-country race this afternoon at 4.20 and I've got to drive out to the cricket sevens to go and pick them up at 6.20. All of that my husband has no idea of. So um, yes, indeed. I uh, the women's strike sounds awesome. Frankly, maybe we should uh, consider it as an option, <laughs> at least within our own households. Tatjana Latinovic, president of the Icelandic Women's Rights Association, who is on strike today, along with all the other women in Iceland, including the prime minister. Thank you very much indeed for your time. You've given us all a germ of thought. I think it's fair to say this morning. Welcome back to the agenda. Just gone midday and we're going to kick off the afternoon with some numbers, some impressive numbers, actually. Uh, Dubai's private school sector has recorded the highest ever enrollment in this academic year. They've never seen so many pupils join in one year. In fact, more than 39,000 have enrolled in the Emirates schools. And that brings the total number of students attending private schools in Dubai to more than 300 and 65,000. That is a growth of 12%, a seriously big number over a 12-month period. Uh, To discuss that big number or those big numbers, I'm joined now by Dr. Abdullah Al-Karam. Now, he is the Director General of the Knowledge and Human Development Authority, better known as the KHDA. They are the authority that looks over, looks under, looks around the uh, Dubai's private schools. And I'm absolutely delighted uh, to have you join me on the line, Dr. Al-Karam, even though I have a problem with uh, prepositions. Good day to you, sir. Hi, good afternoon, George. Yes, it's always good to see you. We hear your voice every morning when we're dropping our kids to school. Oh, thank you very much indeed. So it's lovely to speak to you as well. Uh, Tell me yeah. that this is the fastest growth that you've seen in Dubai schools. Were you surprised yeah. when the numbers came through? No. no, I think, you know, we all have been seeing, feeling uh, this. We, we see the traffic around the schools. 
we see more people in the shopping. Wherever you've been going to in the last maybe few months, you've been feeling that there are there are there are more people. I think this or yesterday was the first time we quantify what does that mean. So the next time when you are stuck in the traffic around the school or shop, say look, there are twelve percent increase on an average in all the schools. So it's important to quantify that. Yes, uh, this is a number we have not seen since we start recording uh, student intake from the beginning of KHD. It is almost 17 years ago. Uh, so, yeah, it is a milestone to get to the first time ever a dig- double digit number. And it is, it's not surprising. We've been talking about it, we've been feeling it. But I think to get it to exactly, you said it's exactly 12%. Yes. I think that that is the point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what we call, um, and it's what they call on the business breakfast as well, anecdotal evidence of, of this massive population growth that we have all, as yeah. you say, noticed, not least on the roads. I mean, I mean, you've got a, a perfect insight on the private schools here in Dubai. Are they managing to keep up with this demand, this sudden influx of pupils? Yeah, I think one thing we have worked a lot in the last 15, 16 years to see we have more schools in Dubai. I think this year, for example, there are five new schools in Dubai now. Five new schools opening this year, meaning they planned in 2021, which is in the middle of the pandemic. So for the last 16, 17 years, we are about an average eight new schools every year. So to your point, yes, we have a capacity as an overall in all the schools in Dubai. But even when we drill it down to segment, let's say this is affordable segment, these are under 25,000. Uh, Durham tuition, there is uh, seats in the average and in, 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 the, in the premium school. There are capacity in the existing school in Dubai. Now, there are going to be always the handful of schools where you have a few waiting lists, but there are a handful of schools. So I think in the last, uh, in the last 15, 16 years, there has been more schools came online and open. And I think that's where the comforting factor now, I know that a lot of the, the data, a lot of the numbers are still being crunched by the KHDA. But can you give us a sense maybe of the, the nationalities of the pupils in the schools, you know, where they're coming from? Yeah, I think one, one thing we, we always say about the Dubai, uh, Dubai private school system is actually it's the largest in the world in terms of, of how big a private schools is. Today, we have 220 schools. It is the most diverse because we have 17 different curriculums running. You have the British curriculum, the American, the Indian, the IB, the French. You have other German. other. So we have very diverse curriculum. But to your point, the students, we have about 180 different nationalities in our schools in Dubai. I mean, I know of one school that has about 130 nationalities in it because I go, I, I always try to go to their international day. And literally, you are in the middle of a United Nations. So it is one of the most diverse student population you've got in the system, which is interestingly not only for us, but for teachers who choose to come to study in Dubai, because this is one of the main elements they look at when they come to teach in Dubai from UK or from US, wherever. They are not teaching students of Dubai. They are teaching students of the whole world, but they happen to reside in Dubai. 
I mean, one of the interesting sort of trends that seems to be changing here in schools in the UAE and, and of course, in, in Dubai is that there used to be a time when, when the kids hit about 11 or 13, often families would then go home to their home countries because they thought the schools there were better. That doesn't seem to be happening now. What do you think this huge influx of, of students says about the schools in this country? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think there are more schools and the schools that are now in Dubai, let's say homegrown schools in Dubai that has been here for 50, 60 years, like the Dubai College, uh, Jess, Desk, all of these schools that has been there for 50 years. Now, if you compare their performance to the ones you have back, for example, in UK, they do a very good job. Actually, they do an outstanding jobs. So I think the, the way the schools are performing academically right now, it's what making those parents to keep their kids here. In addition to that, also we have universities, our latest university who opened a few years ago, University of Birmingham here. So you have strong high schools, you have strong international universities. Why would they want to leave Dubai? It is a very strong picture. It has to be said, you know, as a journalist, I'm, I'm, you know, my, my instinct is to be cynical, is to look for a downside, but it's quite hard to find it with these numbers. And look, I think the point here, Georgia, is also we are focusing and not, not only growing big in number, but we're growing better in quality. And that's very important for us. We set our target this year to increase three targets when it comes to quality. Today, we have about more than 70% of our schools that are rated good and better. But we need that number to become 80 and 90 in the next three years. We're also looking at the students, the Emirati students who are accessing good and better education. Today, about 74%. But we feel there is also a room with this growth. We also have the students of determinations. Today, they are averaging about 80% of them accessing good and better quality. But we don't want to stay at 80%. We want to move into 90 So this growth that we see, it needs to be very much channeled to give us also a quality growth. And I think we are fortunate in Dubai to have this growth and to have this quality focus. So it's a great pleasure to have you join us on the line. Thank you very much indeed for your time. A good news story and, and fantastic to have you join us. Dr. Abdullah Al-Karam, Director General of the Knowledge and Human Development Authority, or the KHDA, as is wider known. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Georgia. Speak soon, hopefully. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai I 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Yes, welcome back to the agenda. We are discussing those amazing figures uh, that have just been announced by Dubai's private schools sector. They have recorded the highest ever enrolment this 2023 to 2024 academic year. Uh, Apparently more than 39,000 additional pupils joined Dubai's schools. That brings the total number of students to more than 365,000. It's a growth of 12%. And like I said before, the break. Yep, that sort of explains the traffic. Do you think it's about 12% worse than last year? I think it is. 
maybe a little bit more than that, oddly enough. Anyway, uh, to discuss those stratospheric numbers, we wanted to turn to one of the biggest school providers here in the UAE. Uh, It is, of course, GEMS Education. A little earlier, I caught up with John Bramley. He's Vice President of Communications at GEMS. And I asked him, you know, is this the fastest growth that you've seen in your schools uh, ever? We've been going 64 years, Georgia, and we're one of the largest, certainly one of the oldest education providers in the world, not just in this region. There have been very, very few times through that 64 years where we've seen a faster growth, certainly in my time. I've been with us three and a half years, and this is easily the biggest growth that we've seen. Now, obviously, you're one of the biggest school providers here in the UAE. That means you cover sort of Abu Dhabi and the other Emirates as well. This is just, these numbers are just from the KHDA. They're just for private schools in Dubai. But are your schools in Dubai managing to keep up with the demand ultimately? Well, some of our schools have actually expanded this year and we've brought in a new school, which is the GEMS Metropole School Al-Waha, um, and that's got uh, quite a big capacity, um, and that's been uh, filling up very fast. We're heading towards a 1,000. Um, we have limited capacity throughout uh, the schools. Um, we've got 40 school, 42 schools in the UAE alone. So, um, you know, the advice that we're giving parents is, get in contact with us, go onto our website, which is gemseducation.com. And there's plenty of opportunities there to to get in touch with our team. Uh, And we're only too happy to speak to parents who are looking uh, for schools across our four curricula. So there is still capacity. That is reassuring because people do still seem to, to keep on arriving here in the UAE. Can you give us a sense about the nationalities that you've been seeing arriving here? Because it is it is so interesting to find out where people are coming from and, and, and the government doesn't necessarily give us a breakdown of, of that data. Yeah, well, I can't either give you precise uh, numbers of the breakdown, but it pretty much is in keeping with, you know, the broad brush of, of new nationalities coming into our country. So, you know, we've seen... Uh, quite a lot of new families from from Eastern Europe and Russia, but everywhere really around the world. Dubai is increasingly popular, as you know, a uh, place to live. It's, it's seen as a, as a as a safe haven in in many ways in times of trouble, and uh, obviously a lot of those people coming over uh, have families. So um, you know they've been getting in touch with us from their home nations. You know we're speaking to a lot of these families in their home nations before they come uh, to to the UAE and helping them uh, with uh, the right school for them. Are families staying for longer, do you think? Are you seeing an increase in your senior school pupils? Because traditionally, people maybe would stay here until their children were eight or 11, and then they would go back to their home country because there was a feeling in the past that the schools weren't quite good enough for, for senior school Yeah, this has been the big change, um, or one of the big changes. We're seeing less uh, movement from our schools to to other schools or or back home to their home countries. So the retention levels are, are, are the highest also that we've seen, certainly in recent years, Georgia. What does that say about the school system here in the UAE? I mean, 
you know, it's a positive message, obviously. Well, it's not just gems. I think the, the school system here uh, in, in the UA generally is among the world's best. The academic results bear that out. Uh, but it's not just about uh, academic results. It's about the, you know, the holistic uh, education of, of, of our children. And, you know, uh, my, my children have been to school not only in the UK, but also in Spain. Uh, and, and the UAE, um, I think, is, as I say, um, very much uh, among the top nationality, the nations of the world. It's, uh, it's, it's truly first class, world class education system. John Bramley there, of course, a Vice President of Communications at GEMS Education, uh, just commenting and reacting to those extraordinary numbers, more than 12% more pupils in the schools of Dubai now, or at least in the private schools. Now it's time to get in We'll do a deep dive, I suppose, into our sports. I'm joined now by our fabulous Chris McCarty, head of sport for ARN, head of sport for Dubai Eye. Chris, it turns out lightning does strike twice at the Cricket World Cup. My goodness me, Afghanistan. I'm, I want to be yeah. then, I'm their new fan, basically. <laughs> I think I am too, Georgia, in all honesty. A very good morning to you. A very good morning to your listeners. And you're absolutely right. Afghanistan beating England, which was a famous victory a week or so back, just their second victory in Cricket World Cup history. And um, what did they do in yesterday? Well, they go and beat Pakistan of all teams. The first time that they'd beaten uh, Pakistan in one day cricket of their eighth attempt. It was a heck of a run chase as well. They were fantastic. So they were. They reached their target of 283 with eight wickets remaining and six balls to spare. Make no mistake about it, Georgia. Afghanistan, very much, not just here to make up the numbers, they have got a genuine chance albeit a slim one, of reaching the knockout stages of this Cricket World Cup. They've got to go some still. They've got to back up these victories. But it's a great story and it is great for the world game of cricket. It really is lovely, especially when you think about the sort of geopolitical situations with, with Afghanistan at the moment. They've, they've struggled with two earthquakes just to talk about the, you know, the physical problems that they're yeah. facing there. How about uh, South Africa today? Who are they taking on in the Cricket World Cup? Yeah, South Africa, they've been the real entertainers of this Cricket World Cup. They made a whopping 399 against your beloved England at the weekend. They thrashed England by 229 runs. Uh, they've got a match you'd expect them to win today. They're taking on Bangladesh and South Africa, who have been, as I say, the real entertainers of this Cricket World Cup. Fancy them to win big and handsomely today. And if they do that, they take another huge step to booking their place in the knockout stages of what has been, I think it's fair to say, a really lively, a real entertaining and a quality Cricket World Cup thus far. Do you know, normally when we do the sport, you know, for weeks and weeks, we'll literally lead on the football, but it's been knocked off the top spot by cricket and rugby over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, but we, we did have some Premier League action last night, didn't we, with Tottenham? Yeah, yeah, we did. Tottenham Hotspur taking on Fulham. It was a London derby and it was Tottenham Hotspur who won yet again. Two points clear today at the top of the Premier League table, Georgia, and all the credit needs to go to one man. That's the big Aussie, big Ange Postacoglu, the Spurs manager, reading this morning that he has, well, he's made history. No manager in history, brand new to the top flight of English football, has accumulated as much points as he has in his first nine games in charge. 23 points in total. Of course, that comes from seven wins, two draws, still yet to be beaten in the Premier League. It is a stunning start to life 
in the English top flight football for Ange Postacoglu. And yep, I say it, this morning Spurs two points clear of the rest. When you consider their troubles, their travails over the last kind of couple of seasons with Antonio Conte, with Jose Mourinho, he's brought a brash, frenetic style of football. It's attacking, it's free-flowing, it's pleasing on the eye. Spurs fans are happy, and maybe just maybe Spurs are here to stay for the longevity of this season. Okay, we've got a big night of UEFA Champions League action to look forward to. Alongside cricket, there's more. Yeah, we do. I'm looking forward to this one. All eyes for me certainly will be on Old Trafford. Manchester United in action. It's a must-win game for them as they take on FC Copenhagen of Denmark. Of course, Man United having lost to Bayern Munich in their opening game in Group A, having lost to Galatasaray at Old Trafford in their second matchup. This really is must-win. It will be a poignant evening. It will be an emotional evening. First time that Manchester United have played at the Theatre of Dreams since the sad passing of the legendary Sir Bobby Charlton, who of course, died at the weekend at the age of 86. So expect there not to be a dry eye in the house. I'm expecting a big performance from Man United a little later. Who else are in action? You've got Arsenal there in Spain to take on Sevilla. That's another tasty tie. And you've got Inter Milan uh, riding high at the top of Syria. Ah, they're taking on FC Salzburg of Austria over at the Giuseppe Miazza in Milan. So a real good night of Champions League action. You can bet your life I'll be staying up for it, Georgia. So I'll be a bit bleary-eyed. I'll have the coffee on when you call me tomorrow morning. We'll be looking forward to the, the sleepy Chris McCarty voice uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll note it then. Uh, thank you so much, as ever. Chris McCarty, our head of sport here at Dubai 103.8. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.